Okay, so this morning we are continuing the short um, sermon series, if you will, on Advent. So the scripture that we're going to look at today is Matthew 2, verses 1 through 4, the first four verses of Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, please turn it there, or you can uh, look at it on the screen. And if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. The inerrant word of God says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in these days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, <clears throat> Where is he who has, been, who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, because your word is true. And during this time of Advent, Lord, we ask you that as we wait, reflect upon the first coming of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be poured upon us, that we may understand the glory of Jesus' first coming, that our conviction would come from the Holy Spirit and would not only end in a concern, but that it would also turn into hope, into joy of knowing who Jesus is, Lord. May you grant us this morning. And it is in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Uh, one, of the, one of the common objections or observations from those outside of Christianity during this time is, um, why are you guys uh, acknowledging or observing Christmas? Like, don't you know that this comes from a pagan holiday. Like, who, who knows whether it was the 25th that Jesus was born or not, if he was even born, right? That's a common observation, comment. Um, I have spoken about that in length in other sermons, so I will not go into depth right now. But the only thing I will say is that it is correct to say that we do not know the exact birthday of when Jesus was born. However, I will contend that that is not the issue that I want to contend on. What I do want to contend on is that Jesus was historically, factually born in space and time. And if our culture takes a season to even be open about the birth of Christ, to speak about it, you better believe we are going to engage in it with the purpose of telling people about Jesus, about who he is about who God is and why we need a Savior as much as they do. Okay, so just a quick comment on that. So now, what about the attitude that we have this morning, this season, regarding the first coming of Christ? As I said, this is the event in history in which the Son of God, the Creator, God Almighty Himself, entered His own creation nearly 2,000 years ago, 
through the person of the Son, Jesus Christ. What is our attitude towards that this morning? Or for that matter, that would extend to what our attitude is toward the second coming of Christ that is yet to happen. Our hope here at Acts Reformed Church is to be people who think of the first coming of Christ and his return as one of hope, joy, restoration, everlasting peace, and something that brings us reconciliation, both with our brothers and sisters, with us here, but more importantly, with God. The truth is, however, that the majority of humanity, and maybe some of us here today, maybe some of you watching through the internet, we do not have that type of attitude to say, yes, I do have hope, I do have joy in knowing about the first coming of Jesus, in the first Christmas, and about his return. The truth is that most people on this earth do not have that same attitude. And therefore, I've titled this message, From Apathy to Concern to Hope to Joy which speaks of some of the possibilities of the different attitudes that some of us may have in regards to the Advent season as we await the celebration of the birth of Christ. From apathy to concern to hope to joy. So Advent, what is this period of Advent that we, t that we speak about? It's a period of waiting, and what are we waiting for? It is a period of waiting... For the coming of Jesus in his first advent, in his first coming. It is a time of reflection, of self-examination. And to think about the goodness and mercy of God. Reflecting how God has enacted a plan to save us from his righteous judgment. More about that in a second. So then our expectation should be in hope, expecting in hope that God has provided a Savior for us. But what is my answer? What is your answer to this hope that God has provided? These four types of attitudes that we're mentioning here in today's sermon are some attitudes that people could have towards the coming of Christ. And this is something that we're going to take a look at. First, apathy. In this case, it would make really no difference to me whether Jesus came or didn't come or whether he's coming. I'm just not interested at all. And if I become interested a little bit even, it could be in order for me to be guarding myself from it. Right? Apathy. Another attitude could be concern. Perhaps there's some of us here or some of you watching that you think it's maybe relevant to me and maybe I am missing something, maybe I should pay attention and maybe I am in trouble. That's actually not a bad place to be. Then it could be an expectation of hope. I have hope because the Messiah came and I'm thinking about his first advent and this hope will bring me restoration, restoration with God. 
even if there's some uncertainty of how that could all play out. And then there's joy. The person that says, I know for a fact that no matter what, because Jesus came, because he lived a perfect life I couldn't live, because he was crucified and was murdered in a, dead that I, in a death that I deserved, and he rose again, because of that I can be joyful. My hope is in him, in his work. And I know that in the end, I will ultimately be united with him in glory, regardless of my circumstance right now. And therefore, I am joyful. Right? That's hopefully where we want to move towards, being an attitude of joy. So then that leaves the question, what is my attitude this morning, this season? Not only because we are in the Christmas season, but also because this attitude towards Jesus will more than likely be the same after this particular season is over and the new year begins. So we're going to look at our text to look at the first type of attitude, apathy. This would be likened to the person that is in a burning house and refuses to get out because they think that they're not in danger. Apathy. Our text this morning in Matthew 2, 1 through 4, tells us that wise men came from the east and they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for Jesus. They were looking for that baby that was born so that they could worship him. Now, when Herod became aware of this, it becomes obvious that there had been a rumor that the Messiah, the king of the Jews, was going to be born right around that time. So Herod, right, he's, he doesn't know too much about the scriptures and what it says about the coming of the Messiah. So what does he do? He brings in the panel of experts, the scribes and the chief priests. And he asks them, hey, what, what about this Messiah? When is he coming and where is he going to be born? And what do the religious, religious rulers do? They quote scripture to him from Micah 5.2. And they tell him that this ruler is going to be born in Bethlehem. Right? In no uncertain terms, they tell Herod where the Messiah is going to come from. So something very important to notice here. They knew where he would be coming from. But they actually had no interest in really finding out whether that was so and if that was imminent or if that had happened. But they knew scripture. What can we learn from that? Well, a religious ruler then, a pastor, a priest, a church leader can quote scripture and yet openly or secretly be very far off from the things of God. This was the case with the scribes and the chief priests. And it reminds us of the words of Jesus when he's quoting scripture himself. And it says, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So a person can know of Jesus and his coming, but yet they can still go on about their daily business as if the coming of Christ has no impact to our lives. Now, some of us may think, yeah, I know somebody like that. Man, how can they do that? To which I would say, wait. What about me? What about you? 
Do we ever think of knowing Jesus, even proclaim knowing Jesus? However, when we analyze our life, we can quickly realize that we are far off from Christ. Are we overwhelmed with our activities, with our businesses, with our uh, acquiring security for ourselves? That we even have, are having trouble, quote unquote, making time for God. Is that where we find ourselves this morning? Because then we would be just like the religious rulers, rulers knowing about Jesus, knowing the scriptures, but yet our hearts are far from God, even during this Advent season. That's apathy through indifference. Yeah, I know, but meh. I mean, ultimately really has no significant impact in my life. Apathy through indifference. Now, there's also apathy through hostility. The scribes, the Pharisees, right, the chief priests, they had apathy through indifference. But there's also apathy through hostility. And who in our text was that? That was Herod. Herod was threatened because of the coming of Christ in that it could mean that power would be taken from him, that allegiance to him would be divided because now some would probably go and plead their allegiance to Christ. So he was threatened. Apathy through hostility. Now, in a modern time, there could be some type of hostility, right? Uh, to those that are offended by even the word Christmas, that they will not only not say Merry Christmas or not Merry Christmas, but they also become offended if somebody else acknowledges this or if, God forbid, somebody tells them Merry Christmas, right? So, I mean, that's kind of silly, but it is the reality of our, of our world where our secular humanity... Uh, Society um, is becoming more and more hostile toward anything that reflects Jesus, his coming, or who he truly is. That's just an unfortunate reality over time. Uh, personally speaking, I don't think it's a, a thing that we should go out of our ways to purposely tell somebody Merry Christmas when we know they're going to be ticked off. But nevertheless, we should also not shy away from it when the opportunity is there. Right? So anyways, apathy through hostility. Here Herod becomes convinced that the coming of Jesus is not only a rumor, it's now imminent, it's happened. He feels threatened. And get this, Herod believes the prophecy of Scripture. See that? He believes it in his mind, intellectually, he grasps it. But... He does not embrace it in his heart because he will not submit. He will not believe in what that ultimately means in the divine sending of the Son of God. He has something else in mind. Yes, this is true. What the scripture is saying is true. The Messiah is here. But my power is threatened. And so much was his threat, the threat to his power, that 
it turned him into a mass murderer. Later in this chapter, Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, we read how he ordered the murder of all children, males, two years and younger. Right? Genocide of the children. Hostility toward Jesus then happens when someone feels deeply threatened by the truth of who Jesus is, the true Jesus. As long as you can proclaim the false Jesus that is okay with sin, that doesn't care how you live, that doesn't call you into account, everything could be fine. But the moment you preach the true Jesus, the moment you realize what the true Jesus implies in your life, then there's a threat of somebody having a higher rank in your moral life. And then the natural human instinct is to get away from that. Push that away because I want to rule my own life. So then do we realize then that accepting the coming of Christ who he is, the Son of God, implies submission to him. If we realize that the coming of Christ is the coming of a Savior, it implies that we need to be saved from something and therefore requires our submission to the Savior. And then like Herod, we realize that we accept that we can no longer be our own rulers. Now we need submission to someone who is going to rule over us. That would be Christ through his Holy Spirit. And we could think of this and say, nah, I mean, that's, that still doesn't apply to me. And then we're back to apathy, the first example we gave. Or we can say, I know who Christ is. I know I should be submitting to him. But I'm not. I'm simply am not, if I'm honest. In which case, you could be in a state of concern. Acknowledging that you are aware of your disobedience. But then yet thinking, eh, I have some time. Slacking off, right? Or, may this be the case if we find ourselves here and saying, maybe I am concerned. I know about the first coming of Christ. I'm not submitting to him. Maybe I should repent. Maybe I should repent now. It's not a place, not a bad place to be if this type of concern is coming to your mind and to your heart. Or if you know that you should be concerned because you are not squared away with God. And it, that leads us to our next point, concern. From apathy to concern. This Advent season may bring us to a conviction that gives us some type of concern. Over where we're at in our relationship with Christ. Am I concerned? Scripture says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. However, there are some instances in which we are carried over by emotion. And that concern is only due to emotion. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotion. God made us emotional beings. And some of the times that God touches us is very emotional. There's nothing wrong with that. But sometimes that emotion can lead to, to a false alarm, to a false call of us thinking that we're submitting to God and we're not. 
What do I mean by that? We see in Luke 18, verse 18 through 25, but specifically in verse 18, that a young ruler came and asked Jesus, what did he ask him? Luke 18, 18 says, the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Then we read on that passage that the young rich ruler said, you know, I'm basically keeping all the commandments, so I mean, I'm good there. But he knew that there was something missing. He perhaps was filled, but not fulfilled in his soul about his current state of affairs in the things of God. So in order to put him to the test, Jesus got him where sin and wealth had gotten a hold of him. And Jesus told him, okay, well, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young rich ruler heard these things, scripture says that he became very sad, very distressed, very sorrowful. Because he was extremely rich. And then Jesus goes on to say how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So then we see this lesson that the young rich ruler was indeed concerned. He was emotionally moved to go to Jesus and ask him, what do I need? I, I want to enter the kingdom of God. And we saw there that although he had a concern, although he was moved emotionally, his attachment to his wealth was stronger than any concern or desire he had to get close to God. And that speaks to us today because if we love our wealth and our possessions more than Christ, our concern that we should may have for the things of God is a false alarm. Christ reminds us that if we are not willing to leave behind everything and everyone for his sake, he says, you are not worthy to be my disciple. You are not worthy. And something like this, we may read it, oh, I'm, that doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich. Wrong. You are rich. It applies to all of us. Granted to some of us more than others, but nevertheless, it applies to us. It applies to you, to me. So then there's a concern, but there's a false alarm. Let's be aware of that. And then we have the other example. Often referred to as the parable of the sower. But it's more the parable of the soils. Why? Because we are told that there are four types of soils in which the seed, which is the word of God, goes out. In each of those four soils, we'll summarize it here. It says that the first one is where somebody hears the word of God. They actually understand it. But the enemy comes and grabs it, takes it away, and it doesn't take root. It says that those are the seeds that fall on the pathway. It doesn't take seed. 
doesn't take root. The second type of soil is when somebody hears the word of God, they receive it with joy, but then the word takes no root in the person because tribulation or persecution will come in account of the word of God. Your family, your friends, your girlfriend, your spouse, and starts questioning you about what is all this Jesus stuff? And little by little, or at once, you're like, all right, fine. You know, I'll give it up. I don't want any trouble. When tribulation or persecution comes, that person, it says, falls away. That is the soil that is on the rocky ground. It never takes root either. Then the third one is that that is sown among the thorns. The soil is among thorns. The seed lands there. The word of God lands there. But then the cares of this world, and get this, cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it bears no fruit. The word is there, it's taking root, but there's just too much going on. I can't do it. And it chokes it. And therefore, nothing happens. But finally, the fourth type of soil this is where true concern is rooted in conviction from the Holy Spirit. Is that word that is sown in good soil. It says a person hears the word, understands it. And little by little, that person begins to show fruit. That person begins to see change. That person begins to see a transformed self that had it been up to them alone would have never happened. That is a good soil, which takes root when the word of God is spoken because of true conviction from the Holy Spirit. So then what can we say then? Someone can feel concerned for the things of God, but yet this concern can be a false alarm. True concern must be rooted in knowing that God is holy and being convicted of our sin so that we understand that we need a savior. I need a savior. This is also the conviction, like the one of the Philippian jailer who heard Paul and Silas sing hymns. And then a great earthquake happened. And what happened? Acts 16, 30, and 31. When this jailer became convicted of sin, he cried out and said, to Paul and Silas, sirs, what, what must I do to be saved? And they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. See that true conviction, true conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. So then having a concern this Advent season for considering what the coming of Jesus means, it's good. It's good if you have a concern. So what is all this Christmas about? What is this coming of Jesus all about? Maybe I should pay attention. That's a good place to be. But it must go beyond a general concern. It must be a concern rooted in a conviction of us as sinners. In an expectation that God has done something for me as a sinner, as someone who is in need. Which leads to the next point, hope. That should bring us hope. 
the concerned sinner realizes that there is a way out. So we saw from apathy to concern, now to hope. Matthew chapter 1, the last part of verse 20 and verse 21, it says, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. See that? It's the purpose why that Savior came. 1 Timothy 1.15a says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See that? Before we can experience hope, we need to realize what that hope is for. We need to own that hope. John Piper rightly notes, and I quote, Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. See that? Before you can appreciate that somebody has paid your bail, first you need to know that you're about to go to jail. If somebody comes and says, you know what, you're squared away, somebody paid your bail, you could be confused. What, what do you mean? I was accused of something? It doesn't really make a difference. But what if somebody comes, the authorities come, take you, and they tell you there's actually no way you could get out. You're in trouble. And then, miraculously, somebody comes and finds a way to bail you out. Now you can appreciate that. See the difference? In a like manner, Christmas is an indictment before it can be a delight. Christmas is about the coming of a Savior. If you don't think you need a Savior, Christmas is not for you. When we realize that the Bible is describing me when it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin. And I'm left with nothing else but to cry out like the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? When I cry out like the blind beggar Bartimaeus and say son of David have mercy on me. Once I start owning that. That's when Christmas can start to be joyful, to be hopeful for me. Not any time before. Anyone who does not see the need for the coming of a Savior is like a patient with a terminal disease for which there is treatment available, but they refuse to believe the test results that they are sick. I don't need it, I'm good. But look, here's the results. You're going to die. No, I'm good. That's basically how any person thinking that the Savior coming is not applicable to them. And therefore, there's no place to be apathetic or complacent in regards to the coming of the Savior. Let us remember when Jesus said that he came... For those who are sick 
and in need of a physician, and not for those who are well. The period of Advent is one of meditation, of thinking of the significance of the coming of a Savior. And it's a beautiful thing when it becomes personal to me. I need that Savior. I am hopeful because God has provided that Savior for me. The provision made by God through Jesus. And when we start to realize that, then our hope can also produce joy, which is our fourth point. Right? We've gone from apathy to concern to hope and now to joy. Joy is the assurance of eternal life despite circumstance. Joy is when we can affirm that Christ in our lives is sufficient above anything that this world can offer us. When Christ is sufficient and above anything that this world could offer us. Let us look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See here it says that we believe in him and rejoice with joy. When the Philippian jailer asked, what must I do? The correct answer then and now is believe. Believe in Christ. Believe in what he has done. Trust in him and you will be saved. So when we believe, that should produce a rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible. Reminds us of the other scripture in Philippians that says that God will give us peace that goes beyond all understanding. In the maturing of our Christian life, then we should look to a time when our joy does not depend on our circumstance, but rather finding a way of finding God's glory in the circumstance that we're in so that we can come closer to a Savior. Because we should be reminded, we live in a real world, the life of a believer is not necessarily characterized by happiness. Now granted, happiness could be more readily attainable if we are diligent in the things of God. I mean, that's, practically speaking, that's true. By making godly choices in our everyday life. Making godly uh, judgment calls in those things that most matter to us. But nevertheless, happiness is not guaranteed. Trials are. But furthermore, unlike happiness not being guaranteed, we've seen that joy is guaranteed. Joy does not depend on circumstance, but rather on the fact that we are children of God. That we are only sojourners through this earth, which is not our home. Our home is a heavenly home. And then joy fills a believer when we have the assurance of eternal life, knowing 
that there will be a day which will mark the beginning of no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more suffering, no more evil. And when we will be united and see our Savior face to face. Oh, that should bring us joy. But we are choked up. We are in danger of being in a place where we're receiving the word of God and is being choked away by the cares of this world, by the trials, tribulations, by the deceit of riches, like the parable of the sower says, right? And us being too short-sighted, not seeing beyond what we are living now. And then it comes very real when we say, I'm doing all the right things, right? The book of Malachi, we spoke about why are all the people that are partying it up and hate God, why are they doing so good? We can easily become lured and attracted by what the world is offering us. You don't need God. You got to go for this other stuff. Possessions, accomplishments, wealth, pleasures, comfort, security. And sure, that, that will fill us for a bit, but it will never fulfill us. Only the joy of knowing Christ can truly fulfill us for the need that we have in our hearts. As Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has made, has made men with eternity in our hearts. And only the joy of knowing Christ can bring the everlasting fulfillment that is required in our hearts to be content. So then joy produced when we have the assurance that we have trusted Christ. And that's taken us from apathy to concern, to hope, to joy. So then what else can we say here in closing? Well, first of all, we can say, am I passionate about finding the Son of God and worshiping Him? This morning we can be like the wise men who were seeking to worship Him. Or we can be like Herod, being interested about Jesus so that we can learn how to avoid Him. So that we do not submit to him. So that we keep being kings of our own life, of our own morality. Like we keep a distance from him. I know about him, but I want to keep the distance. Or are we like the hypocrite religious people of the time? Where I can quote scripture. I, I can show you where it says things about Jesus. But really, like, if I'm honest with myself. If, like I put down on my fronts, it really doesn't make a difference to me. I have really no, I have no desire. Who are we like this morning? Perhaps we are like the Philippine jailer saying, I want to be saved. What should I do to be saved? How can I repent? So what, it, what is the best attitude that describes ourselves this morning? 
are we going to do something about it? Or are we thinking that it's going to change automatically? One of the things that we can do is talk about it. Fellowship with each other. We are a church. We are a local church. We can be honest with each other. We can lean on each other. Carry each other's burdens. We can pray for each other. We can keep each other accountable. And we can rest assured that there's at least a couple of people around us that need that type of support of where they're at in the work with in their walk with the Lord. And we should encourage each other. Which leads here to the second observation here as we close is that the lie that many people believe that are concerned, maybe I should consider the things of God seriously once and for all. There's a lie that many believe that says, well, I've already filled God. Matter of fact, I failed him way too many times. Don't let apathy take you. That is a lie from the devil, and that's the devil's playground. If you are concerned, may that be from the Holy Spirit giving you conviction to follow Christ. There's a chance for you if you have that concern. You're here, you're alive. It is not over. Pray that God will show you his hope and his joy. Not only for this season, but for the rest of your life. And then some of us, we know the meaning of Advent and Christmas. But again, if we're honest, we're just like the scribes and the chief priests. I can tell others about the scriptures, about Christmas, about Jesus. But I can remain apathetic. Ultimately, the warning comes to each one of us personally. Not about somebody that I know, like I've got to make sure they know. comes to each of us personally. Advent is a self-examination period to repent of the ways in which we are not walking with God. To repent of a shallow walk with God. And may we be overwhelmed by the conviction of the Holy Spirit and not overwhelmed by everything else around us that takes our attention away from God. So that perhaps we can go from a, a place in our lives where we give God our remains, right? whatever's left we give God from our time, our, our talent, our treasures. And why do we give God our remains, by the way? Perhaps because deep inside we think, God, he's not going to complain. Like He'll take this, right? That sounds very practical, but that's very sinful. Because we're going to reap what we sow. That's where we find ourselves today. May we go from that to an attitude of saying, what have I done? Lord, forgive me. Grant me repentance. May I not be apathetic. May any concern that I have for the things of God bring me hope and bring me joy knowing that I have a God who has provided a way of escape from His wrath. And may this Advent season then be filled with hope, with joy, knowing that Christ has come to rescue people like you 
and like me. And that we are reconciled with a holy God that loves us so much that he gave his only begotten son so that if we believe in him, not if we go do all these works, not if we all check these boxes, no. If we believe in him, we will not perish, but have everlasting life. May this Advent season remind us of the glory of Jesus and how he is sufficient above and beyond anything that this world can offer us in order to bring us hope, in order to bring us joy. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we think of this season where this, this year has been tough, Lord, we live in the real world. May this morning, the things that we've heard may not be just platitudes, but may they be real conviction, Lord. May these things bring real hope, knowing that you having provided a, a son for us, a savior, is not something for our neighbor or our parents or our kids. But it's for us, first and foremost, Lord, that each of us would own that. And that before Christmas would become a time of joy and hope, that we would realize the severity of our indictment in it, because we need a Savior. And we are thankful, Lord, because that has been provided to you. That's our hope, that's our joy, that Jesus has come. That he came in time and history to be born and lived a perfect life. That he died a death that we deserved. And that he rose again victorious over death. And that by believing in him, we have the assurance of eternal life. We submit these things to you, Lord, and we ask to please make our joy be full this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.